0: All right. This morning, I I, I would ask for you to just indulge me for a moment. And the avenue we're about to take, I pray that you yourself will find a mental picture, a picture in your spirit where you are able to relate to what I'm about to say. If you would, contextualize yourself to what I'm about to speak to you. And I promise you the Lord is going to reveal a truth to you today because these words are not my own. These words are not my own. If you will yield to the Holy Spirit and let Him speak to you something this morning, I'm expectant for great things. Amen. Amen. And might I just testify for a moment? Uh, Those of you who have teenagers, uh, you might have heard about church last Wednesday night over at the youth department. Y'all have been hearing a lot about how the Lord has been moving over there. And last Wednesday was no different. We had a young lady filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. We uh, had people slayed in the spirit. Chains were falling off. The Lord gave one of our young men a vision. I mean, it was powerful. And I would like to encourage you, if you have a teenager, get them to youth. Get them to use because the Holy Ghost is moving in a powerful and a tangible way. And it would be my greatest pleasure for this service to end up the same way. Amen. Amen. If you were to take your life story, we all have a story, right? None of us have the same story, but we do have a story. And if you were to take your life story and place it chronologically on a timeline, start to finish... From beginning to end. Where you could reminisce of years past. You would likely see things you've not thought of in decades. You would also likely recall times that you wish you could forget. It would be like pulling out old pictures. How many have ever done that and said, I haven't thought of that in years? You'd have memories If you placed your life on a timeline from beginning to end, you'd have memories that would make you laugh until you cry. And then there would be memories that would just make you cry. The statement, I don't know who that person is anymore, or a lot of things have changed since way back then, are likely to be phrases that would exit your mouth. There would be emotions that varied from happy to sad, from joyful to mad, from proud to embarrassed, from content to disturbed, from restful to restless. You might even feel ease to anxiety. You might feel peace to stress. You'd recall the good times when there was plenty, and then you'd recall the tough times when it was a struggle. You'd remember seasons of harvest in your family where you reap bountifully in whatever that time held for you. You'd also remember the years when your life felt like a battlefield. How many of you have been in a battlefield? The times when there was a giant that put up quite the fight. Maybe it was your health, maybe it was your family, maybe it was your finances, your marriage, maybe it was a relationship, maybe it was temptations with sin. Maybe it was your mind, but whatever it was, it was a fight. Have you been there before, church? Perhaps the most relatable, yet so misunderstood seasons of one's life, I mean so relatable, but so misunderstood, is the season of a battle. A time where adversity seems to have the upper hand A time when the struggle looks bigger than you are. Now, whether the struggle is actually bigger than you are, that's up for discussion. But whatever it is, it looks bigger than you are. We've all walked through battlefields. We all go through times in life when we're either fighting for something that's at stake Or fighting to keep our head above water. But what makes the battle so misunderstood is the process that it takes to get from one side to the other. You see, we have a tendency to get hung up somewhere in the middle. Fights in our spiritual walk, I'm sorry to tell you this, are inevitable. If you are a believer... The devil is going to try and fight you to rob you of the joy of your salvation. It's going to happen. But fights in our spiritual walk are inevitable. It's how we carry ourselves that's optional. It's how we respond that's optional. Where our faith is, is optional. You see, I, I heard a statement not long ago. and It said, change is permanent. Change is permanent. Life will always change on you. And when it changes, it will probably not go back exactly how it was before. But your growth in it is optional. You can stay bitter in the change, or you can decide to take it on the chin and grow with it. Is anybody hearing me this morning? We're going to go somewhere. Where we get tangled up is when we begin to operate under what we see instead of what we know. The best of us have gotten turned around because we've acted out and made decisions based upon what we can see instead of walking in what we know. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 3. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 3. We have a lot of scripture to cover this morning, so I'm going to do my best to read through this uh, as quickly and efficiently as possible. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 3. It says the Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another. The enemy, you could read, occupied one hill and God's people occupied the other. How many times has it felt like you're standing on one hill and the enemy standing on the hill next to you just staring back? The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels on his legs. He wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man! And have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse who who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons. And in Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back. And forth from Saul to tend to his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days, get this, get this. For forty days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. You know, that's a lot like the devil. Every morning, right when your eyes wake up, there's what's happening? There's usually a devil on your shoulder taking his stand. And you know what? Right before you go to sleep, what's usually circling through your mind? What the devil is having to say while he's taking his stand. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Hear this. Early in the morning, David left a flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the borders as he was talking with them. Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. David heard it. He heard it. And when the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him. In great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. David asked the man standing near him, He said, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine? It removes this disgrace from Israel. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger and asked him, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. He questioned his motives. Now, what have I done, said David. That's proof siblings have always been uh, eager to fight. Now, what have I done? You probably said that to your brother or sister this morning. David, he said, can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, "'Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him.'" Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came off or carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, struck it, And killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. He'll be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go and the Lord be with you. He sent him off real quick. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. That's important. He was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with its shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army over to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. The whole earth will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. The battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell down, face down, on the ground. So, David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. This is powerful. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with his own sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah searched, toward, uh, searched forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. And their dead were strewn along the Sherem road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. Hear this. David took the Philistines' head... And brought it to Jerusalem. And he put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. Glory to God. That, church, is how you win a battle. Amen. Amen. Never once in history, never one time in all of history, has there been two people who were ever more unequally matched. Never once in history were two ever more unequally matched. In the eyes of the physical, in the eyes of the physical, there was a clear winner. A giant from Gath, armed head to foot, having been trained since his adolescence versus what could have been considered to be a joke. A small shepherd boy who had not a lick of armor on his body. A teenager who smelled like sheep. A boy, dusty from the road, whose brother thought he should mind his own business, whose father sent him to deliver grain, cheese, and bread to a bunch of worried warriors. To every man's eye, Goliath was the winner. But that is the physical speaking, of course. Saying Goliath was the obvious victor in that showdown is a judgment made from the eye. Believing that Goliath was the winner was a judgment made from the eye. And may I say this morning, our eyes are the greatest evangelists that we've got for excuses and self-doubt. Your eyes will convince you to not do something even after God himself has directly inspired you. Your eyes will talk you out of obedience. Your eyes, they don't have an audible voice but they leave you with a definite impression. Your eyes will make you assume more about a circumstance than you've ever actually heard yourself. Our eyes will tell us everything we need to assume to get us out of what we don't want to do. You'll listen to your eyes. Hear me now. You'll listen to your eyes more than you'll listen with your ears. I didn't hear People are quicker to look for something than they are patient to wait for instruction to walk in wisdom. Goliath was the obvious winner in the eye of one with no spiritual reference. But really, that entire battle was unevenly matched because Goliath was the one who had absolutely no chance of victory against David. Do you hear me this morning? In the physical, this is what happened. Jesse sent his boy to go deliver groceries to his brothers, but in the spiritual, God sent his boy to go deliver a nation. In the physical, what happened was Jesse sent his boy to go see how his brothers were making it in wartime. But in the spiritual, God sent a shepherd to go deliver some sheepish saints. When doubt from the eyes of Saul told David he couldn't go fight because the giant was too big, the Spirit of God rose up inside of David and said, He's not too big to fight. He's just too big to miss. Hear me this morning. David was a young boy of faith standing in the midst of an army of eyes who said the giant is too big. David was a boy of great faith who stood amongst an army of men whose vision debilitated them from conquering the enemy standing in front of them. David might have come to that battleground under the assumption of executing childish chores, but in heaven's reality, he was planted there for a breakthrough, not to execute childish chores, but to execute a giant that was hindering the people of God. Might I say, church, that's where you are today. You're set in a place, I need you to hear me, you're set in a place by a task that seems minuscule. But when truthfully, you're divinely planted there to break down strongholds. Are you hearing me? I need somebody to preach back with me a little bit this morning. Let's stretch and let's wake up. You're divinely planted there to break down strongholds. You may be standing on a battleground that seems too big to fight and feels like it's not progressing, Anywhere, but listen to me, the inconsequential task that sent you there was just the airline by which you traveled. You weren't sent there for idle tasks. You were sent there to execute giants in a war that you might not have even started. The task that sent you there, no matter how minor it seemed, no matter how minor, inconsequential, unimportant it seemed, Whether you were delivering bread to your brothers, fulfilling work obligations, performing parental responsibilities, standing in maturity for your family or standing in the gaps for those who couldn't, whatever it was, that thing that sent you to battle will only be remembered as the rite of passage it took to unexpectedly take you to victory. Church, you may have walked in like David to a situation that seemed larger than life with people more qualified than yourself to fulfill a role that you were not trained for at that time. But if you refuse the armor That Saul offers you. If you refuse the armor that the world offers you from the clearance rack section of the store because it's too cheap for them to wear themselves, hear me now, the armor that touts pride, if you refuse it, the armor that screams revenge, if you refuse it, the armor that relishes bitterness, if you'll refuse it, the armor that harbors unforgiveness, if you'll refuse it, the armor that promotes promiscuity, if you'll refuse it, listen to me, It's in that time when you refuse to bow down to what the physical speaks over you that the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, anointing you with oil to do great things, giving you an audacity to stand in front of Goliath and say, I come against you not with spear and a sword, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Hallelujah. Don't get hung up in the wilderness now. Some of you are so close to the promise Keep fighting, because Israel, because Israel put so much, so much value on the physical, they would have been better off if they had not even seen the enemy in front. In verse 16 of 1 Samuel, we're about to go somewhere big. In verse 16 of 1 Samuel 17, it says, For 40 days, for 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. You know what you can liken that period of time to right now? It's about how long Russia's been in Ukraine. Think about that time. Just think about it. That's just a visual mental illustration for you to relate this to. About that long. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning. Every morning and evening and took his stand. You know what that means? That means that 80 times Goliath, 80 times Goliath came forward and boasted and defamed God's name and made himself look big. He made himself look, sound arrogant. He made himself scary, loud, and intimidating. Eighty times he defied God's name. And I want you to notice this. This is where it's going to hit. I want you to notice this. Among those 80 times, in those 40 days, there was never once one sword, sword drawn. There was not one arrow flung. And there was not one soldier killed in the line of duty. There was no targeted advance from either party, the Israelites, nor the Philistines. But like any good enemy knows to do, I need you to hear me. I need you to hear me. Like any good enemy knows to do, the giant in their way went not for his sword, but he went for their mind. He went for their mind. One of the greatest fights is that of the mind. Just go like Goliath in the battle that's within us. The enemy will never have to touch you as long as he can alter your perception of the problem. The first day Goliath came out from the Philistine camp, he was big and he was intimidating. The second day, he came out of the Philistine camp. He was a little bigger. And he was a little more intimidating. On that third day, when he came out of the Philistine camp, he looked a little stronger. He sounded a little meaner. On the fourth day, he came out of the Philistine camp. Goliath was a whole lot stronger. And a whole lot meaner. And by the fortieth day, Goliath's head was touching the clouds. His steps would cause earthquakes. And his voice would send shivers down the spine of Israelite soldiers. What's your point, Tanner? The longer you wait for a giant to go away, the larger and more intimidating he's going to be in your life. The enemy, I need you to hear this, the enemy does not get bored by seeing you frozen. He joys in it. Because every single demon who's ever gone to devil school, listen to me, they learn two things. Number one, how to blow things out of proportion. You ever been in a battle in a season, then you get to the victory and you realize how small it was? Devils will always blow things out of proportion. And the second thing that they learn is how to distract your attention from hearing the voice of God. Are y'all hearing me this morning? Is this hitting anywhere with somebody? When you fall into the trap of listening with your eyes instead of your spirit, you'll be just like an Israelite sitting at the camp for 40 days talking about every single ghost story of Goliath that you've never even heard, but rather that the hype and the uh, 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 over-dramatization of it has stirred up. Whenever you're in the moment of a fight... When you're in the moment of fear, when you're in the moment of anxiety, when you're in a time of a battle, what happens is an over sensitization just begins to completely warp your perspective. And you will begin blowing things out of proportion. And you're going to begin telling stories that have no bearing. You're going to begin thinking of thoughts that aren't even coming about yet. You'll be preparing for problems that aren't even there. Are you hearing me? When the devil makes your problems bigger, seem bigger than they are, and you believe them, what's happened is he's already distracted you from receiving anything beneficial from the Holy Ghost. When your world has been blown out of proportion by the devil, and you don't even know it because your depression's too big, your anxiety is too big uh, to see above it, the enemy has just clipped the wire on your landline to heaven that connects you to the operator of heaven and earth. He's distracted you from the voice of God. You see, some of you today are at ground zero in your life. And you're holding on for dear life. And I'm telling you right now that God is going to meet your need. I'm telling you without a, beyond, beyond a shadow of doubt, God is going to meet your need. You can sit confident in that right now. He's going to come through. It's going to happen. Why don't you just get the whole fear of failure out right now? Because it's going to happen. But we need to know how. We need to know how to live, how to operate in that. So that's what we're going to talk about. In our text, we read of three separate people with three separate armors, but only one of the armors worked. Goliath had an armor, but Goliath's armor didn't work. Saul had an armor, but Saul's armor wouldn't work. David had, a Goliath, uh, had, had an armor, and really, his armor was no armor at all. You see, if you'll stay with me, we're going to talk about the armor that works. Part of Israel's appeal to act cowardice towards Goliath was his stature and armor. It's what they saw. It's what they could see. Goliath was about nine and a half foot tall. That's nearly three foot taller than I am this morning. His armor and his weapons were elaborate. He was a sight that no doubt struck fear into the hearts of Saul and all of his soldiers. Goliath's purpose was to incite horror by way of his mere appearance. Let's talk about that appearance. Goliath had on his head a helmet. And it was likely a a typical Philistine uh, feathered headdress. You could see it a lot of times in old Egyptian and Palestinian art. And these helmets, you see, were made in various shapes and sizes and from many, many materials. They they were likely lined with uh, quilted linen cloth. They were made out of leather, metal scales, brass, or iron. He had a coat of scale armor upon him. It's also called a coat of of mail. And this coat of scaled armor weighed over 125 pounds. That's some of you. And that was just his coat. Its base layer was either made of quilted uh, linen or leather that consisted of approximately, get this, 700 to 1,000 scales of metal plates, and brass uh, pins closely locked together, 700 to 1,000 just on a coat. Pieces of horns and hooves were also pinned closely together, and they were sometimes sewn onto the cloth, and sometimes the metal plates were even overlapped on top of each other over his base layer as an added protection, and this extravagant body armor draped down all the way to his knees, which led to Goliath's bronze greaves. His greaves were protective coverings for the fronts of his legs. They were made of brass and bound around the calves and the ankles. They were likely padded on the inside with thick, coarse leather. His bronze javelin was probably a heavy, curved, flat sword with a a cutting edge on the outer side of the blade. Goliath's spear was likely similar to his javelin, And hear this, with an iron spearhead that weighed over 15 pounds. Just the spearhead. And the beam in which the spearhead was attached was likened to a long weaver's rod. Goliath's last defense was his shield, carried by an armor bearer that would have been large enough to protect his whole body. It would have been a standing shield and not a smaller rounded shield like you might imagine. Uh, and with someone holding up his shield, Goliath would have been freed up to throw his spear or to fight with both hands free. There is no doubt in my mind that the sight of a gruesome killer like Goliath would strike fear into the heart of every Israelite looking at him. You see, Goliath was an adversary with most likely decades of experience. Decades of experience and a wide gallery of armor. And all of his armor measured in to weigh approximately 260 pounds total. There's no doubt that that would scare the mess out of anybody facing. Would you feel confident going in that? Someone over nine and a half foot tall with nearly 300 pounds of armor would make you think twice about charging in after him. You see, Goliath's armor was very showy. You could even say gaudy. He was made to look extravagant, intimidating, extraordinary. Goliath, you see, was the Philistine celebrity put on display as a front full of big boasts and defiant claims towards God and his people. And see this, hear this, okay? The Philistines... Into the idea of big boasts and extreme personas, so much so, hear this: so much so that they let their champion Goliath walk in front of God's people and claim that he, from Gath, Goliath claimed himself that he, from Gath, was a Philistine, someone of no of no uh, a race or genealogy of a Philistine heritage, claimed that he was a Philistine himself. Let me tell you this morning, if you buy into Goliath's armor, an armor that flaunts rebelliousness and pride like the Philistines did, you'll end up boasting so much that about being someone you're not that you'll let somebody less than half your size kill you in your future. Goliath's armor is a representation of the enemy. The enemy is one who marches out in front of you in the time of battle, and the enemy mocks you. The enemy slanders you. The enemy makes you feel small. The enemy blows reality out of proportion, and the enemy will boast about being someone he's not, or he'll even boast about doing something he's not even done just to make you worried about it. Is anybody relating to this this morning? The one thing that was between David and Goliath... As they approached one another, on the battleground was the giant's shield. You see, any time the enemy attacks you, the enemy himself will have his guard up to deter you from any success towards freedom. The enemy wants to rob you of joy, and he doesn't want you to ever step into freedom again. Therefore, he's going to do everything in his power to hinder you every step. Of your life. He's going to do it. You see, even with a shield up and a helmet on, a coat of scale armor, greaves, javelin, spear, sword, and and vile, profuse language spilling out of Goliath's mouth, Goliath still had a flaw that left him susceptible to defeat. There was still a thing that left him easily defeatable. You see, that flaw was that he left his mind wide open. He left his forehead clear. And as I stated earlier, the greatest battle we face today is the battle of our minds. And when the enemy made himself look bigger than he was, when the enemy's mouth was bigger than his fist, when the enemy boasted himself into a bigger target, pow, all of a sudden, David hit him with the truth right between the eyes. Right between the eyes. And today, when the enemy comes at us and seems larger than life, we too can hit him square between the eyes, just as Jesus did in his wilderness, and say, it is written. There's no need for fear because perfect love casts out all fear. There's no reason for insecurity because greater is he. That's within me. That he that's within the world. You don't need to worry about provision. Because I was young and now I'm old. Yet never have I seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging of bread. Are you getting a concept with me this morning? Just as Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days... Forty nights, going without food and the devil tempting him, boasting him and showing off all the pleasures he would bestow him if he would only bow before him. All Jesus had to do was hit Satan right between the eyes with the truth that is the word of God. And in times when Satan has you between a rock and a hard place, you too can hit him right between the eyes with the word of God. Your only hope is grounding yourself in the truth Of the Word of God. Anything less than the truth of the Word of God will leave you susceptible to a stone between your eyes. Cast him out with the Word of God. Cast him out. May I say, you can't cast him out with the Word if you don't know it. Let's look at Saul's armor. Saul was a king of fatal mistakes. He really was. Saul's armor in this story was never even put on by Saul, but rather it was offered to a little boy who could act as a substitute in Saul's place. I want you to follow me. The armor of Saul was doomed to begin with because it was supposed to be on a man who wasn't where he needed to be. I'm going to say it again. The armor of Saul was doomed to begin with because the man it was supposed to be on, he wasn't where he needed to be. Now, why'd that matter? Let me tell you. Because Saul should have had his own armor on and should have, had to, should have been the leader that he was anointed to be to begin with instead of sitting in his tent with the, the enemy outside scaring his people. Instead, Of taking on the role of the anointed, putting on the armor he was given, and and defeating the beast by the grace of God. Instead of that, he was scared. And he jumped at an opportunity with little opposition when a, a boy, when a boy, a young teenager, came along to do the job of fighting a giant that wasn't even his own. Saul's armor is a great depiction of our world today. You see, his armor was that of a royal. I mean, you could imagine it was immaculate. You could imagine it was ornate and made of the best material they could find and get their hands on. But the problem was that it was put in a corner for 40 days, being left unfulfilled. Follow me. The world is full of people today who dabble in everything that they shouldn't because they're left unfulfilled, which leaves them handicapped for their calling. You see, they give the appearance of class and importance but have submitted to the hand of fear or complacency because the truth of God's anointing has lost its luster in their life. Now, where are they? They're bound by chains of darkness and sin because they've lacked in their consecration to God. They've lacked in their consecration to God. You see, you see the world is not the enemy. We need to get that in our heads. The world is not the enemy. The world is the product of the enemy's influence. You see, Saul was the product of the enemy's influence. Saul's armor was set in a corner ruled by fear and a lack-driving faith. He lacked a driving faith. And you know what? Sure, the armor, it looked good. It looked good. It was beautiful. It was pretty. It was everything it needed needed to be. But it didn't have God's anointed inside of it. God's anointed was too busy sipping wine and buying time. Saul's armor was designed for a man who once knew the Lord, but it was never put into action the way it was made to because Saul had a churchy lip with a worldly slip. Saul's armor is attractive and its ideal, For anyone going into battle, but its downfall is the lifestyle of the one who was supposed to wear it. Your armor will not fight a war on its own, church. It's not going to fight a war on its own. It's only as effective as you are. You see, armor is a useless pile of scraps until someone places it upon themselves. Saul left his armor in the corner of his tent for 40 days, and the problem For some of you is that you've left your armor on the coffee table or the nightstand for 40 years. Saul, hear this, Saul lost his opportunity. He lost his opportunity to prove by God's grace his cutting edge in battle because he got comfortable in his tent. He got comfortable... In his tent, he got comfortable waiting. He got comfortable in a wilderness without any armor. Sometimes your prison could be more comfortable than making the choice to get to freedom. He was anointed king over Israel. But complacency set in, and he forsook what could have been his victory at the very first opportunity he got when a young shepherd boy was willing to do what he wouldn't get a lazy boy for. The world, let me tell you, it's enticing. The world is very, very fashionable to most. And when there's a giant outside your tent, if you're not careful, you will get comfortable staring at a suit of armor that you've not picked up in a long time The armor looks pretty, and you know you've got the armor. It's yours. It's in your tent. It's worked in the past, but the problem is you're too comfortable to pick up the blade. That would cut the enemy's line directly out of your life. Don't neglect your sword. Don't neglect your sword. Don't neglect your shield. Don't neglect your helmet. Don't neglect the belt of truth. Somebody come on with me this morning. Don't neglect the armor that God's got in store for you just because you're unwilling to pick it up. There's a lot of freedom and victory we never step in because we're too lazy to act upon the faith that would get us there. I wish somebody in this house would act like a spirit-filled Holy Ghost saint because we're trying to get you somewhere that's out of the battle you're stuck in. Some of you have been in a tent For a decade, looking at armor that could have got you out of it a long time ago, and you're just waiting on a little shepherd boy who smells like sheep to come win your fight for you. It's not going to happen like that. You see, the armor looks pretty, but you got to pick it up. Don't neglect your sword. Saul's armor never fit David, it never fit David because for David, that armor was uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable. It wasn't what he was used to. It didn't fit right because he wasn't used to it. David had not conformed himself to Saul's expectation, the way the world operates. That armor was not David's. It wasn't ever going to work. The shiny things that the world offers you to get you out of what you're in are not going to work because they're not yours to begin with. Wake up! You see, David was a shepherd boy, and this is so important. David was a shepherd boy, and he was separated from influences that might taint the water or distort the purity of a child of God. You see, David grew up in the fields with the father, not in a club of dancers and gambling tables. David didn't grow up on his phone trolling internet sites that he had no business being on. David didn't waste his time on social media talking to people about things that don't matter. I was waiting for an amen. Thank you, Ken. You see, David was anointed. So wearing a backslid king's armor was not going to work. Saying that Saul's armor is that of someone who has listen to this. Saul's armor is that of someone who's experienced previous favor of the past, but whose lack of conviction disqualifies him from victory in the future. Are y'all hearing me? Oh, I hope this is taking good ground. This is seed right here. You see, when you put on the mind of Saul. And you begin looking with your eyes. And you begin listening to your eyes. And when the devil's distracted you from the voice of God. And when things have blown out of proportion and you've been in your tent for 40 days listening to an army defy you and the gods you serve. When you put on the mind of Saul, the armor in your corner begins to get rusty. It begins to get rusty and you'll have no drive for Righteousness. If you're not careful, you'll end up falling on your own sword when the enemy surrounds you and they'll take the crown you lived under. You see, Goliath's armor didn't work. It didn't work. Saul's armor, it it wouldn't work. It's not that it couldn't have worked, but because the enemy had influenced Saul to a point of being unusable to achieve a victory. It it wouldn't work. Saul had succumbed to the spirit of complacency and standby and comfort and ease and chilling out where you are because you don't want to start something you'd have to finish. You see, if we aren't careful, we can get so comfortable in unrighteousness that we won't be able to submit to God when he calls us and we're going to disqualify ourselves from achieving victories in the future. That's the truth. We can disqualify ourselves from achieving victories in the future. If God can't use you, he'll use somebody. David's armor, this is a different kind of story now. David's armor is different than Goliath's armor and Saul's armor because David's armor was not a physical armor. David's armor was not a physical armor. David was as armed spiritually as he was unarmed physically. Think about that. David had nothing on him except a tunic, a bag, some river rocks, and a slingshot with a smile. Because what he had on the inside was greater than anything Saul and Goliath and the Philistines had on the outside. Listen to me. David... Yes, give God praise. David arrived on the battle scene with a simple task from his dad to deliver some food from his brothers and then to take a pledge back home signifying that the job had been done. But what sent him there was a chore. What kept him there was conviction. David heard the blasphemes of Goliath and could not believe his ears. I mean, he was shaken to the core. He could not believe his ears. He said... Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who is he to speak about my Jesus that kind of way? Who is that uncircumcised Philistine? You see, where the Israel's uh, army saw a terrifying warrior, David saw an uncircumcised opponent. What does that mean? That means it's that, that Goliath was someone who was not part of God's covenant, and therefore not under God's covering. Hear me? In spite of Goliath's size, in spite of your giant's size, he lacks the authority and power to which David and you have access to as a covenant member under the blood of Jesus Christ. David's armor was confidence not in boasts and in a shining array of weapons. His armor was not in a loud defiance of false gods, but his confidence. His armor was in the power and authority of the one who is higher than any giant, stronger than any bear, faster than any lion, and greater than any adversary. Listen to me. David's armor was a boldness in faith despite the adversity. He never lost his boldness. Church, you've gotten weak. On some boldness in the Holy Ghost. We need a new influx of vigor in the church. We need some zeal. We need some prayer warriors. Listen to me. David's armor was a boldness despite adversity. His armor was a persistence and a determination for the justice of Israel. David's armor was trust in his God from experience past. Sometimes we've got to lean on the God who's brought us out of our plagues in the past because we can have confidence for him to do it in the future. David knew the weight of the threat that Goliath offered. And Goliath, and he knew the reward of killing Goliath. But what made the difference was that he knew the God he served who stood by him every time he killed a lion. Every time he killed a bear that would try to carry off one of the sheep. Listen to me. David's mindset with God was we've weathered this storm before. If you've done it once, Jesus, you'll do it again. (laughs) Hallelujah. David's success had very little to do with the physical. Very little to do with the physical. David's success, I mean... uh, The physical was not even a factor besides the stone. The greatest feat of David was not that he killed Goliath with a slingshot, but that he had the faith in Jehovah God to stand where no one else would before. David's point of view concerning battle was not to achieve personal gain. He didn't care about his family getting freed up from taxes. He didn't care about winning Saul's daughter for marriage. He didn't care about that. What he cared about was shutting the mouth of a blaspheming giant. Listen to me. When you get the Holy Ghost on you, and people begin to blaspheme the gods you serve, it's going to send a zeal down your spine that makes you spit in the devil's face. Now, we're too afraid to step on their toes because we're afraid if we get onto them, they're going to be afraid to come to our church. It's about time. We quit letting the world influence our culture, and we get back out there and influence them. The fact is, let me say this, the fact is the world doesn't have a chance. They don't have a chance. We've become of a mind in the Christian community that believes that, you know what, what if God doesn't come through? What if God doesn't save them? What if God doesn't fill them with the Holy? What if they don't feel His presence on a Sunday? Who are you to say if God's presence doesn't come and interact with them? We've got to get back to a zeal that says when Goliath comes down the line in the morning and in the evening we're not going to stand for it, and when the world tries to offer us something that's not going to work, we're going to set it aside. And we're going to go with what we know because God's used me with a sling and a rock many times more than he's used me in some backslid king's armor. Listen to me. The church is in a new season where we're shifting and it's about time the battles we face are faced with a vigor and a zeal with the spirit of the Lord on our side and with us not being convinced that we're going to lose but rather we're convinced that we're going to win because the God we serve is the one who's killed the bears in the past and the lions in the past. We've saved too many sheep in order for us to be afraid of the devil and what he's going to do to us today. Are you hearing me? You see... David's point of view concerning battle was not the personal gain, but it was to lay down all he had in order to shut the mouth of Goliath. His fight like yours today was not sparked by the physical, but waged by the spiritual. The Word says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness and wickedness in high places. Listen to me, saints. You will get nowhere in your life by trying to operate under your own power to face your giants because you will get smashed. You will get destroyed. But listen to me, the armor of Goliath, which is rebellion and pride, and the armor of Saul, which is poison of worldly influence and grace, will do you no good. It will do you no good. The armor that works is when you wear the confidence of who God is and what He's done for you, and when you go unashamedly in the face of evil and combat it with the truth and power that is in this Word of God. When the enemy... When the enemy comes against you and the world's armor fails, and the enemy, uh, he's attacking you, he's tearing you up one side and down the other, and he's saying to you, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? You tell him, devil, you are a dog, and I am going to beat you with a stick. I come against you not with a spear and a sword, but in the name of the Lord of hosts. Hallelujah. God Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. The armor of David relies on God, on God, the same God who's been with him when he slayed bears, lions, and giants. Listen to me. It's all for the sake of saving sheep who didn't know any better. Worship team, make your way up. Sometimes going into battle is remembering what God has done in the past and having the unction to believe for it again. But even greater... David's armor works. It's the only one that works. David's armor is knowing whose you are in Christ and having the authority that you possess as a believer under the covering of Jehovah God. If if you're under the blood, guess what? You have a right to use that name of Jesus and cast the enemy out of your house. If you're under the blood, you have the right to rebuke the adversary And to plead the blood. We have a whole generation of teenagers that don't even know what it means to plead the blood. Somebody learn to plead the blood over your home, your family. Grab a hold of the anointing that destroys every bondage and don't let go of it. Get conviction. Don't sit by while the enemy terrorizes your family. While the enemy terrorizes your job. While the enemy terrorizes your finances. While the enemy terrorizes your body. Get a hold of the anointing that's going to destroy that yoke. Go in there in the confidence of who God is. And what he's done for you. And don't neglect the power that is Jehovah Jireh, your provider. Listen to me. Some of you here today have forgotten the efficacy of whose you are. And you need to get a fresh taste of the power back. David was anointed, and some of you are anointed, but you're falling into the mindset of Saul, who's leaving your armor in the corner of your tent when the devil is wreaking havoc on you and the people you're related to. The armor of David permits you to not only defeat the enemy, but to cut off its head with its own sword. What's the giant in your way? What's he saying to you? What does he look like? Is he a big giant? How big is a sword? Because coming soon, that same sword's going to be in your hand. And you're going to take his head back to your tent. Not to boast or to brag, but to say, God delivered me from this. Some of you are in a battle my God, you're in a battle. And it's a battle that's deeper than you'd like to admit yourself. Some of you might not have even come to the the realization as an individual of how deep it goes in your own life. And the devil is trying to glue you straight to your seat so you won't get up, so you won't leave the tent, so that you won't go in the unction and power and authority of the Holy Ghost. Some of you are listening to that devil and you're staying glued to your seat when in reality you need to be up here breaking that bondage in an altar of prayer. If you want the answer to your problem, there's no better place to find it than right here. You see, The voice of God is never cut off when you inhabit your life with his presence. The stronghold of darkness that chokes the inspiration has no bearing. It has no right. It has no hold. Whenever you decide to come down. Kneel at an altar. It's a God. This giant's big. He's scary. I don't know how I'm going to defeat him. takes a lot of faith to go literally where no man has gone before. It's in that time when the Lord, Lord have habit, the praises, prayers of his people and you will get a new light. You'll see a flag, man, you'll see that flashlight. It's going to be blinking at you. And all of a sudden you can say, Lord, I might not see how it's going to end, but I know you're there. I, I might not see how it's going to end right now. I, I don't know what circumstance is are going to take place. What what events and activities there's going to be in my life before I see this promise come into fruition. But the fact is, that some of you have been holding on so long, you just need to wave your white flag. You need to quit trying to do things by your own power and strength. And you need to rely on the God who was there when you defeated lions, when you defeated bears that were all coming after your sheep. Right now, I want you If you're in a battle, if the devil has tormented your mind, if the devil has riddled your body, if you've got someone you love dearly, and they're going down a path that will harm them, and you're wrecked over it, if you have suffered suffered traumatic loss, and you're in a darkness, if you're bound up in chains of darkness and sin, If if you don't understand why you feel the way you do, you might not even know what it is. You just feel that something's on you. And you want to get free from that. I want you to stand up right now. And I want you to get to the front of this church. Because the Lord, I'm telling you, He is going to make a way where there seems to be no way. You come down here to this stream. And you pick up five stones from this brook. And God is about to send. (laughs) He's about to send you to the battle line. And when you go to the battle line, what's going to happen is Goliath is going to come straight for you. That's what he did to David. But it's a front. It's a front. Because all the armor he has in the physical cannot defeat the anointing you've got in the spiritual. Find a place to pray. There's more of you out there.